Because a firm with five founders who have, you know, 300 years of experience between them is not a sellable firm um, because in effect, you're buying the people and you're going to get a very low multiple. Welcome to the Cashing Out podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Professor Joe O'Mahony, an industry-specific business consultant who built and sold his own company in 2007. Since his exit, Joe has been using his personal experience in M&A to help business owners successfully grow and exit their boutique consultancy businesses. This is a unique niche and the type of M&A expertise we love at ExitWise. Over the years, Joe has provided consultancy for many of the largest consulting firms, including McKinsey & Company, IBM, Deloitte, and Bain. And today, he is the professor of consulting at Cardiff University and advisory board member at several high-growth businesses. In this episode, Joe shares how his personal exit helps improve his consultancy for his clients, how professional service firms are valued, what great companies do to prepare for an exit, and how AI is disrupting the M&A world and what we can do to leverage it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Joe O'Mahony. Joe, I really appreciate you being here. I've been waiting on this interview for a while. Want to just have this conversation with somebody, not only somebody that's built a business and had an exit, had great learnings from it, but then you've taken that experience and brought it into a very niche market. And that's what we love at ExitWise, like expertise into really niche markets of understanding how you use your experience and help our fellow founders in this niche market, not only grow their businesses, but also exit. I think this is going to be a fascinating conversation because each industry has its own nuances, right? That mm-hmm. founders really need to understand. So, you know, I was, as you know, we are booked for the year. In fact, Mark Cuban had this spot and I bumped him just to get you in. You charm us. You charming, man. (laughs) Thank you for being here, Joe. I really appreciate it. Todd, unfortunately, I I listen to your podcast. (laughs) So I I do know that you say that to all your guests, but I I, I wouldn't be offended. Um, Thank you so much for having me. As I say, I I listen to the podcast. I think you do a fantastic job in sharing your knowledge and it's, you know, it's very valuable knowledge. So it's a real Thank you. Honor for me to be here. Thank you. You know, I got to say that as frustrating as it is for Mark sitting in the green room every week, I just <laughs> saw him on Billions. I don't know if you watched that show, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it, it is one of my favorites. And I reference it often when it has to do with M&A and selecting your M&A experts. And I equate that to how we find the best M&A experts for our founders. And when we identify them, often we will say, how certain are you that yeah. you're going to deliver this outsized outcome? And you get this look of, I am not uncertain. And it's because yeah. they know something that others don't. So I didn't mean to be no, uh, no, a jump on that, but you know, seeing Mark on that show last night, I was like, wow, I hope Mark is, is okay with us doing this. <laughs> I thought you were just mentioning him so that at some point he'd give you 10% as a, uh, as a marketing fee. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> you never know. You never know. You know you, you never know. Our fingers are crossed. He'll come out of that green room someday. Yeah. Um, so, Joe, I think one of the best ways to start, right, is your background and sure. how you got into to entrepreneurship. You were doing yep. some consulting, build a business, have an exit. Yep. Maybe you could give us that yep. uh, to start. 
Sure. So I'll, I'll keep it short and sweet. Um, so I, I wanted to be Indiana Jones. I wanted to be an archaeologist. So I, I got into uh, Oxford to do ancient history. And then surprise, surprise, I couldn't get a job afterwards. So my, my dad, who is a very supportive man, basically said to me, Joe, um, <laughs> you're not going to get anywhere. I mean, I wasn't in the top, you know, there's only a handful of those types of archaeologists around, and I wasn't uh, bright or handsome enough to join that club. So <laughs> my dad said, look, go and do something businessy. And so I did a master's um, uh, in industrial relations, and basically because history had taught me how to write, I came top of the course, which meant I got funding to go and do my PhD. Um, so I came out of my PhD, and although I loved, I loved teaching, I loved learning, and I'm a big, big fan of evidence-based advice, I wanted to get some real-world experience. So I went into corporate consulting and spent about seven years uh, working my way up various greasy poles. The, my last big project was launching Three, the mobile phone company, where I was head of their internal consulting team, really creating the business architecture. Anyway, basically, at the end of that, I was knackered. I was so tired. Um, I was doing six-day weeks, uh, you know, 14 hours a day. And so I thought, well, stuff this. I'm going to go to academia. And I did, and I loved it. I loved the teaching. Obviously, you take a massive cut in your in your salary, but I got bored quite quickly. I was used mm -hmm. to, you know, these long days things happening quickly, and you don't get that in any university, unfortunately. So I started a company. I got a patent on a, and this is going back to 2002, 2003. I got a patent on a, a locker to charge mobile phones, and it had various technology in it that we, we patented. There were no competitors at the time, and we started building these things called buzz boxes where you in effect, locked your phone in, it got a charge. And if, if your phone got a message, you got a little vibration on your key fob to let you know that someone was calling you. So it was, yeah. it was fun stuff. I started it with an old school friend of mine. Um, we grew the firm. Um, we had an exit. It wasn't, it, it certainly wasn't in the tens of millions, but I learned a fair bit in terms of what, what to do and what not to do next time. Then what had been happening throughout this period and has continued to happen is that my friends who I left in consultancy often went bumped up against partner, left and started their own firms and started to come to me for advice about growing a consulting firm. And, and it's what I specialized in when I came to academia. I was researching, writing and teaching about management consultancy. So they came to me for advice and I realized there was very little. And you'll know this. There's a lot of bad advice out there. And there's very little evidence out there. So I thought, well, I'm going to dedicate myself to finding out what works. So since then, I've been specifically focused on boutique firms, how they grow, the challenges they face, and how to overcome those challenges, especially those inflection points that I've heard you talk about, you know, sort of on the S-curve. And from that, have built my own practice so I, i'm part-time at the university three days a week and i do two days a week sort of consulting where i advise professional service firms specifically and most commonly management consulting firms on growth and exit i don't deal with the transaction myself um, but i help get them in shape find a good mm -hmm. advisor and hopefully share some of the lessons that i've seen over the last 15 years 
Thanks for sharing that. I'm feeling like I could have been looking at Indiana Jones here, right? If the career path went a little bit differently. <laughs> fatter, bolder Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what I think is interesting is you glossed over building intellectual property, getting patents, building a company around it, getting a product market fit, creating sales yeah. and selling a company. And we often see our guests will say, oh, you know what? I didn't make a billion dollars and yeah, I'm not yeah. living in the French Riviera <laughs> and somehow discounting the amazing effort and success you had in this entrepreneurial journey. And frankly, that's what we're about. You even mentioned there are things maybe you would have done differently. Definitely. I would, I would love if you would back up a little bit. We have plenty of clients that come to us that have intellectual property. In fact, yep. there's one that is just amazing right now. And yet the business case around that IP tends to be difficult from a startup perspective, particularly yep. in healthcare. But you know, you were able to commercialize this in some way in product form and take this to an exit. So I'd love to hear, can you take me through how did you decide to exit how were you approached? How did you sure. go about it? And then maybe some of the mistakes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I could talk for days about the mistakes, but and, <laughs> and I guess, you know, you learn from the mistakes and that's, that's you know, a lot of advice I give to my own clients is not to do what I did. <laughs> um, so we got to a stage where we were selling these buzz boxes or leasing these buzz boxes and the technology worked and, you know, people were interested. Um, in terms of the, the intellectual property, it's, it's obviously very different going down the patent route than it is, you know, the type of intellectual property you get in consulting firms will typically be around a method or perhaps even just a database of clients. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really, really hard stuff to protect legally. Yes. And I would encourage most consultancies, and I'm talking about most of them here, not all of them, um, not to bother down the, you know, perhaps go for the trademark, but don't try and get, you know, a patent around any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Number one, patent lawyers are really, really, really expensive. <laughs> Yes. And it's an easy way to burn through 100,000 if you're an entrepreneur trying to protect your property. And then, you know, if as happened, someone takes your idea and starts doing, you're then in a position saying, well, do I want to spend a quarter of a million on patent lawyers to take this to the courts? Or if it's a big firm, they'll just drag it out until you're bankrupt. Um, we avoided that. Um, but it, it was interesting. I ended up, we, we, we did a brief spell on Dragon's Den. Um, in the UK. So it's, sure. it's the same thing as, as, as the US, except um, perhaps a little bit more, a different accent, perhaps. Yeah, less <laughs> um, Mark Cubanish. Yeah, yeah. Less, I guess less aggressive. It's more <laughs> cups, cups of tea and passing the scones round. Um, but I, I went on that and everyone was obsessed about the, the intellectual property and asked, you know, really good questions about it. But actually... What we found and what I find with consultancies when they're growing and a lot of firms when they're growing is actually first mover advantage or even second mover advantage is incomparably valuable rather than looking backwards, what do we own? How can we protect it? It tends to stifle innovation. So when we actually sold the company, it was actually a guy I met in the pub. I was having a pint with my um, one of my business partners and we, we met this guy and got chatting, and he was looking for a company in this area, something aligned to mobile phones. He'd been very successful in the mobile phone area, um, but was looking to diversify. Um, we didn't go through any formal process. We didn't have any advisors other than our dads and each other. 
And so we ended up selling sort of on, on a handshake and a couple of beers and it, it went through and we did, you know, we more than covered our costs, put it that mm-hmm. way. But, you know, looking back, perhaps a bit more advice, uh, perhaps we should have gone down the private equity route and really got to scale um, mm-hmm. before doing this. When I look at what the buyer has done with our intellectual property, they've done really, really well out of it. And mm-hmm. I think we were a bit scared to go down the VC or the PE route. And I think maybe if we'd done that instead of selling, we could have done better out of it. So I guess there's lots of lessons there that I carry on, you know, above and beyond, I guess, what my research tells me. You know, it strikes me as your consultancy, you must be evaluating talent all the time in these firms and how do they grow that talent to increase their own value. And when you're building a company, you got to look at yourself. Do I have the team to take it the next step? You're saying I should have gone VC or or PE, but maybe you found the right group, the one that was able to take it to the next level. And I feel like, you know, that is part of your entrepreneurial legacy, right? Things die on the vine all the time. So to have it be successful later, I think that's a huge win, right? Money's one thing, but building something of real value that contributes... Definitely. It it is not, you know, every time I go into an airport or a train station now, I see, you know, I I see the model and I see the, the, and I think, yeah, you know, I had, I had a small amount of impact on the real world, which I can, is important at least for my students. That's great. Can I ask, when you structured the deal, was there cash up front or did you structure an earn out where sales had to continue? How did you think about that? It was it was pretty much all up front. Um, and so the guys had, they were much bigger than us. They had something that they was ready to go. They yep. simply wanted to take our product, take our intellectual property and exploit it. And they did that really, really well. I think there was maybe a three-month overlap where they kept us on to ask questions, you know. But a lot of that was really about design. Where's the file and who do we speak to about this? And that, you know, that went on for a year or so, but it was unusually in these situations, it was all cash up front. Okay. I mean, that, that's, that's great. A, a lot of our founders come and ask for that ideal situation, right? I want cash out. I'll have a little transition, but I'm done. So congratulations on that. I think one of the things I really wanted to, to talk to you about is that how you use that experience, right? You said, Hey, I can talk to founders about what not to do on the exit. I know you're not necessarily part of the exit team, but what we see is services like yours, particularly in very niche categories, if you can help those businesses grow in a certain way and be ready for exit, boy, when they come to us, the job is so much easier. Um, Maybe you could talk about like, what is the process when you're working with a client who has, you know, an exit two, three years out on the horizon? Yeah, sure. So, I I mean... I start off, so if we take that scenario, I start off, I've got, as a lot of advisors do, I typically join as, a, as an advisory board member uh, focused on growth and exit. I start off with a deep dive. So I have a 300 question questionnaire, which um, people groan at when they see it. Number one, it allows me to get a really deep understanding of the company and its strengths and weaknesses and what it needs to do to maximize its value. But number two, it's a good settler. Because a lot of founders, and you'll know this, will think that they've struck gold, that they've got this wonderful company and it's ready to sell. Just by going through that process of answering questions, they'll realize that actually, you know, they might be really strong in some areas, but some areas they have paid no attention to or they weren't even visible 
Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's about that those known unknowns, but also the unknown unknowns. And so that questionnaire helps. And so what I do then, I get the questionnaire, I produce, I've got sort of these, and you would have something similar, I guess, and all, all advisors would, these big levers of growth um, and company value. Um, and so I put it into the model, and then I generate a set of recommendations, which ends up as a plan. And throughout this, obviously, you're discussing with the owners and the CEO about uh, about what their priorities are, what, what's worked, what hasn't worked. But what you want to end up with is a plan for maximizing value over a specific time frame and a discussion around the investment it's going to need in order to achieve that. Sometimes during that conversation, you the founders or the owners realize that actually maybe they don't want to sell. Maybe their eyes have been opened to the opportunities of private equity or even mm-hmm. has, as has happened recently, taking over another firm instead. And so it's, it's really that getting to know you thing. And once that plan is established, I do two things. One is holding them to account. Are you focusing on the right things? And if not, why not? And number two is holding their hand through that process, because as you know, those two years coming up to sale, the founders are inundated. They can take their eyes off the ball. They have all types Mm -hmm. of existential crises. Um, And I'm really there to say, you know, number one, here's a set of templates that you can use to ask the right questions or structure the right things. But more importantly, it's reassurance. You know, it's saying you, you are doing the right thing. Stick to the plan. Remember what we said. And and really reassuring them about have, giving them confidence in what they're doing. Because very often it will be people's first rodeo and they really yep. want someone to bounce things against and say, yes, this is right. You can, you can feel confident in doing this. Joe, I love the beginning, the, the questionnaire, right? That 300 questions, oh, begrudgingly founders might say, oh, that's you know, going to be a lot of work. It's nothing compared to due diligence that they will go through in any kind of sophisticated M&A process. Yep. I love that you get that up and allows the, the management team or the owner to really question, oh, wow, these are the things I'm going to need to think about. In fact, what I love is I think you've incorporated some of that into the valuation calculator that you've created mm-hmm. on your site. And we also have a valuation calculator but I think yours is, it's very specific to your industry. I was yeah. reading through some of the questions and what we've tried to do, we put one on our site and we're trying to be be specific for over 300 different industries and, yeah. and, and that is challenging and we're getting there. I love your, your focus and the questions and how you ask them are very focused for your niche yeah. and made me think a lot, a lot about your niche. So I would, I would encourage people to check that out mm-hmm. on your site. So where I'm going is that your industry boutique consultancies yep. has unique methods for growth and exit. And so you are the expert in this. And so I would love to hear more about how this industry is just so different. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, you know, I, occasionally I'll put things up on LinkedIn and, and people will say, well, actually, this, Joe, this isn't just consultancies. It's every company. Uh, these, you know, <laughs> If you're talking about the marketing funnel or you're talking about finding great people, then, you know, fine. But consultancy and professional service firms are different generally for two reasons. One is that they are what is called a credence good by economists. And a credence good is a good that you are buying where the seller knows more than you about Mm. what's wrong. And that, and you can think of doctors, think of accountants, think of lawyers, you know, management consultants. 
Um, and that means that there are very high levels of trust required to buy. So you, you'll often get these guys, and I'm sure you'll have seen them in, in different areas, but you'll get these guys in pretty cheap suits um, promising to scale your business to, you know, a million dollars or more in three months. Um, yes. and, and in effect, most of them are selling a marketing funnel. Now, marketing funnels don't work very well for consultancies because trust is so important. And there's only so much work you can do to build trust through uh, building a digital funnel. And a lot of it is still relationship-based. And that doesn't mean that it needs to be the founder, but it means that the partners need to be able to build relationships, build trust, and become that trusted advisor, someone that you would go to, you're happy to spend the money, and in fact, mm -hmm. sometimes high costs are an indicator of high quality. If you need brain surgery, you're not going to look for the cheapest brain surgeon that's out there. You're going to look for recommendations. You're going to look for testimonials, case studies, and all the rest of it. So it's it's a credence good, which means it's a different type of firm, a different type of organization to many other companies. And as a consequence of that and supporting that is the fact that there is no tangible asset. So, okay. you know, most consultancies will say, well, people are our greatest asset. Well, to be honest, if that was true, um, no one would buy you because people can walk out the door. Um, so there needs to be something beyond the people. And it's usually stuff that can't be protected. It's, it's your reputation. It might be your methods. You might have some intellectual property around, you know, your marketing system, but it's not stuff that can be protected. And so consultancies compete in two markets, really. One is for the clients in terms of getting the money through the door. But the other one is really their brand, their people, their values, their culture. And, you know, you can see this in companies like McKinsey, Bain, Boston Consulting Group. They spend a huge amount of time and effort molding the right people in the right way, doing this mentoring relationship so that you get highly skilled people that can have that conversation with clients. So, I mean, a, a lot of the stuff isn't unique to consultancy. But certainly when it comes to growth and, you know, forming the right people, um, building the systems and processes that allow you to have an asset in the firm when you haven't got products or software to own, that type of stuff becomes quite important to maximize your value if you're a consulting firm. Got it. I think what resonated with me was was trust, right? And what I love is you can, at the beginning you could instill trust by saying, I've been in your shoes, right? I have built a business. I have exited a business. I knew what it took to grow a business. And so that credibility uh, probably lends itself very well in the early days. And then as you put wins on the board, clients having you know great outcomes, great performance, speaking highly of you, that trust builds and builds and builds. So I can see how when you say intellectual property, you will be building that reputation really as your IP over time and how valuable that is and how you go about leveraging it. Can I ask when your clients get to that point where the exit is really, mm. really on the horizon, how do you value that type of intellectual property? Yeah. I mean, it's a tough call. And uh, to quote you from earlier, you need to get yep. under the floorboards. And that's something that most sellers aren't prepared for, the level of detail that a good due diligence will look at. And this is especially so in consulting firms. Because there isn't a product and there isn't software, there isn't a thing you know, for, mm -hmm. for people to go and inspect, you know, how good is this product? What markets can we sell it in and all the rest of it? And, and it's a lot more subjective. And so what you, what you have 
And don't get me wrong, intellectual property is crucial, but it's just reframing that in terms of away from, you know, patents and trademarks and copyright and towards stuff that actually works for your firm. And so I typically, my advice for a client is number one, do you know your market? Do you know your buyer? If you know those two things, then do you know your service? Have you commodified it? Have you standardized it? Do you have something that is taken out of the heads of the founders, of the owners, and is then codified such that junior people can follow it? Because a firm with five founders who have, you know, 300 years of experience between them is not a sellable firm um, because, in effect, you're buying the people and you're going to get a very low multiple. Consulting firm multiples at this size, sort of boutique level, um, and that would be between 50 to 500 people, are typically between eight times, seven, eight, nine times. Uh, EBITDA. EBITDA, Seven, eight times, yep. Yep. Obviously, the more you can build a system that produces a steady pipeline of clients, that produces a steady cohort of bright, well-trained people that can service the clients and can generate that money like a machine. It's harder to do in a consultancy again because because of the the trust relationship is so important. The higher that multiple is going to go up. And what what you're getting now more and more because the cost of software – and data analytics and AI has collapsed over the last five years, you're getting more and more consultancies saying, well, listen, we've got, a, we've got this template, we've got this process, let's see if we can turn it into software. And then, then you start to question what type of firm is this? Do we want to put it in the software category where we're going to get a multiple of 20? Mm-hmm. But that's a massive risk, and you might need private equity to get you there. Or do mm-hmm. we stick with our bread and butter and still have be in the consultancy category. Yeah, I think I think I really understand it this idea of product positioning, the process that you created that you really honed that is essentially an engine that other maybe employees or new hires can step into so it isn't just the the five guys that know the yeah. secret sauce. Yeah. And and so it is a system that you've built it seems to me, I'm wondering how brand, are you able to kind of brand that over time based on reputation? And now I think one of the most fascinating things is, you know, how much of your business could be software and how AI mm. is disrupting that. Yep. I would love, if you don't mind, just the educating our founders around how you see AI really disrupting service-based businesses yeah. like this or consultancies. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Now, for a long time, I, I mean... Law has already been disrupted. So if you look at, you know, any any of us can go online and get a will now. And that's not AI. That's just, you know, basic access to to knowledge. And so the legal industry has already been disrupted. The day rates. I lived in a house with a load of lawyers when I was at Oxford or would-be lawyers. And incredibly, they're all, you know, scraping around trying to find decent work, apart from the one that went into merger and acquisition law. And so technology has disrupted Um, some professional service firms, but some are slower to be disrupted than others because they are less contained. So with the law, if you think about the body of law, it's actually quite a self-contained unit and Mm -hmm. it's got very fixed ways of changing. If, you know, the Senate and the House of Representatives need to pass some legislation in order to change the law. Now, in medicine, 
it's slightly less self-contained. You know, diseases mutate, uh, viruses evolve, and so you've got a less contained system. But AI is now at the state where it can produce better medical prescriptions than doctors can in many cases. Mm. Management consultancy is that step further. And I'm not saying that organizations are more complicated than the body or more complicated than law, but they are less, much less self-contained. So, for example, if you had a room of a thousand consultants and you said, hey, listen, my supply chain is less effective than it should be, you're going to get a hundred different ideas about what to do, and methods to solve it. And the only reason that is, is because consultancy is much less of a science than medicine or law. Consultancy is one of the last professions that is being disrupted. And for years, no one thought it was going to happen. And all of a sudden, we've got LLMs. And, and we've got lots of different types of AI. So, you know, there's, there's you know, great data analytics stuff out there. There's predictive software. There's the whole madness of crowd thing. It's all great. But the thing that's made it most visible are these AI chatbots. Joe, when you say LLM, you're talking language models, right? Yeah. yeah. L- okay. Large yeah. language models of the type yep. ChatGPT4 and BARD and their ilk. Um, and they have been, obviously, they've been trained on billions of points of data. And they are giving, to be honest, they're giving answers to questions that are continuously getting better that are as good as most juniors could give now. Sure. I've just trained up a bot using my own writing. So I've, I've published over the years, I've published about a million words on management consultancy. I've taken all of that and trained a bot up on it. And I gave it to a whole load of um, very skeptical CEOs on LinkedIn to uh, yeah. to play with. And they've all come back saying, wow. And I'm not, you know, I'm not selling this. This is really an experiment. But if it can do that with a professor who spent 20 years you know, studying the consulting industry, maybe the potential is to go beyond the consultant and get to mm-hmm. some advice from partner level. And that's really quite worrying. Now, with the big firms, you know, if, if you're a big client, you're not going to go to a chatbot for strategy on should we launch this product in Southeast Asia. You're going to get some McKinsey consultants behind it. But those McKinsey consultants are probably going to be using AI in order to answer that question. So it's got sure, all types sure. of implications for brand, for cost, for dependency on some of these models, and also mm-hmm. for the, the pyramid structure. You know, the, the big leverage structure of a consultancy shaped like a triangle has been the basis of consultancy for 150 years. And all of a sudden, if you're getting rid of a lot of juniors, you're changing Mm -hmm. the shape of that model, which has, again, a load of implications. You know, just a couple of things. That model, right, is similar in the investment banking world, where you have the juniors doing a lot of the work. And what we've seen is that kind of that is the industry agnostic model. Dump all of the the modeling on the juniors who don't really know any yeah. of the businesses <laughs> really for for real. And I think that there's an enormous opportunity for those bigger firms to use AI and get real insights and offer kind of the right marketing materials for businesses. That's why we love. Working working with boutiques because there are people like you doing the actual work presenting the businesses as they should be presented to the right buyers not lists that have been scraped by juniors. Yep. I want to jump back because you made the comment your classmates, you know, all that were trying to be attorneys maybe struggling except for the M&A attorney. I wanted to point out 
as we give advice on this uh, podcast, that the M&A attorney, that is a very specific type of law. And that when you go into a transaction, no matter who you're using, your family attorney is not the one to do this. It is an M&A attorney that will sure. protect you and be very, very efficient. It might seem more expensive when you're signing up, but worth all every yep. dollar you spend in spades. So yeah, that is a really interesting topic, how AI is going to change so many industries so quickly. I know a lot of people are, are kind of leaning into it. And I've yet to see it effectively change the M&A world, yeah. uh, but, it, but it's clearly coming. Joe, I, I'd love to give you the opportunity just to be respectful of your time. Is there anything that you want to talk about, talk to our fellow founders, the advice that you would have as they are thinking about an exit on the horizon, the parameters that they should think about that make those businesses more valuable in the future, things they should be working on today? Yes. So I I guess there's there's two things. Underlying it all is to, and I'm I'm not, you know, saying this because you've very kindly invited me on the podcast, but, you know, get... Get good advisors. You know, people are exit wise. And I've had this conversation, of course, you you know, and it's the same with your point about lawyers. You might pay a tiny little bit more for an advisor that, you know, may or may not hit your EBITDA by 0.001%. But my God, it pays dividends. And if there's if mm-hmm. there's one thing I've learned throughout, I've held the hands of, I don't know, 50 odd companies, you know, either through growth or through the exit process. And good advice can make, you know, multiples of difference, literally. So that's that's the first thing. I would just comment, it's when you're making that evaluation, any individuals making that evaluation, you're really should be focused on outcomes, right? Whether yeah. it's management consulting yeah. or M&A advisory, right? It is the outcome to focus on because that is a magnitude difference that you will receive in um, versus what you're going to pay for a premium service. Yeah. And, you know, off the back of my, you know, my own advice, which you asked for, um, I, I guess, you know, there's there's dozens of things, but I wouldn't play the game too much. And by that, mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen a lot of companies, you know, think, well, this is the final year, so we've really got to maximize EBITDA. So, you know, mm-hmm. let's, let's um, hold off spending on XYZ, Let's, you know, sack a few people who haven't been performing so well. Now, any buyer worth their sort will do a due diligence that will find this out. Um, Correct. Any, and, and this goes for any other secrets you've got. You know, if any of your directors have been in trouble with the law, if there's any, you know, things hidden, these people are paid to find out about it. And the thing that will destroy a deal is a surprise. If you're up front and you build trust, you know, talking about credence goods, and this is a trust industry. If you build trust, you're going to get a much happier, less stressful and more successful outcome than if you try and hide things. And then these things pop up and ruin the deal. And as you know, once you've ruined the deal, that's pretty much it, because you've then got to start the process again. Your eye has probably been taken off the ball, your sales might have dipped a little bit, certainly they'll dip after the process. And so that's another thing. And on that point of sales, really just try not to take your eye off the ball. The other thing a great advisor will do is take some of the pressure off you so you can make sure that your growth story is one that continues rather than one that takes a dip whilst you're selling. Joe, I love that advice. Truly playing games with EBITDA to try to 
maximize and exit, you're right. It doesn't work. They're all going to see, every buyer is going to dig in and see, oh, you stopped making investments here. Oh, you ditched all the healthcare plan, the healthcare <laughs> plan that kept everybody here in the first place. Yeah. There are so many little things that you could do. And what you really need to be doing is building your business as if it is not for yeah, sale. Definitely. And through that process, right, you cannot let it slip. You made a really interesting comment when I'm not sure. What was your word? Was it a surprises, yep. right? When the surprises come out, the red flags go up and you have not shared all of that, which could be anticipated ahead of time. If you haven't shared that with your advisors, you're sending your advisors into battle with their hands tied behind yep. their backs. You really have to trust, trust, trust the people that you have hired. Give them everything so they can address these surprises, have good talk track to it. And so the buyer who's going to figure it out knows about it going, going in. And what's interesting is if they do back out and your process is dead, trying to come back to market, everybody's going to know, hey, we saw you went to market last year. Mm. Why didn't that work out? And the same sure. thing surfaces again. So you really should think of it as you got one shot. I think you've, you've made comments about trust all throughout this podcast, which has been awesome. You have to trust the people um, that you're working with and, and not play games. I, it is fantastic advice, Joe. I really appreciate Thank it. You. I'd love to ask you this one question that I ask some people, which is who you would like to thank for this kind of professional success that you've had, not just the exit, but the career that you've built, becoming the professor, when originally it looked like Indiana Jones route was <laughs> on the path and you got diverted into, and created an enormous brand and success for yourself. Is there someone that you would like to thank yeah, that, that's a really nice question, and it, it would be my dad, without meaning to be too mawkish about it. He's a, he's a wonderful, good, honest, kind man who, you know, just believed he's got five children and he believed in us more than you can imagine. Oh. And, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of advantages growing up, but he was always fighting our corner and fighting the battles when, when they needed. So... If, if there's anyone that uh, can take any credit for my modest success, it's it's him. Oh, that's great. Um, I'm aware of that, and it is quite a gift. Joe, thank you so much for uh, the time today. Really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. Todd, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.